Get ready to hear the truth about America on a show that's not immune to the facts with your host, Dan Bongino. Do I have a stacked, loaded show for you today? No, no, really. I have two interviews for you. Dr. Stephen Quay and James O'Keefe from Project Veritas will get an update from James. You're going to want to hear on the FBI raid. On, yes, the FBI raid on James O'Keefe after he got a hold of Ashley Biden's diary, which had some weird stuff in it. You're not going to want to miss that. Also, Dr. Stephen Quay, an expert on the origins of coronavirus. Folks, I promise you, and I'm not overselling this interview, he is a man of few words. We got done with the interview. He is now corroborating and doubling what I'm telling you. It is worth your time. Some of the stuff he's going to talk about, about Nipah virus, deadly viruses in the Wuhan lab, this ORF protein that the coronavirus releases, natural immunity, and all of the things this thing does, just eye-opening. Welcome to the Dan Bongino Show. If you're looking for a firearm that's easy to transport, you got to check out the U.S. Survival Rifle from Henry Repeating Arms. It's a portable rifle you can put together and take apart in a few minutes. And then when you're not using it, you can store the parts in the little case it comes in. It's so small, it can be stored anywhere, in a go bag, anywhere. It's light enough to carry everywhere. Comes in black and two different camo patterns. You can pick one up for three to $400, depending on the finish. You can watch a few videos at henryusa.com survival. And while you're there, be sure to order their free catalog. Henry makes more than 200 rifles, shotguns, and revolvers in the role made in America, backed by a lifetime satisfaction guarantee and the best customer service in the business. Go to their website. It's henryusa.com, and be sure to order a free catalog. They'll send it with free decals on a list of dealers in your area. That's henryusa.com for a free catalog and decals and to see the Henry U.S. Survival Rifle. With cyber attacks on the rise, protecting your data security is more important than ever. So why is Congress considering a law that puts your data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill shifts billions in consumer spending to less secure payment networks, all so that corporate megastores can make bigger profits. Don't let Durbin Marshall steal your data. Visit handsoffmyrewards.com security and tell your senators to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Paid for by Electronic Payments Coalition. For a stunning interview with Dr. Stephen Quay. Check this out. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast for the first time a guy I've come to have great respect for, a real truth teller, given this dreadful coronavirus COVID pandemic we're going through. Um, Dr. Stephen Quay. Doctor, welcome to the show for the first time. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I've had you on my Fox show, my radio show. You know, I had you on the Fox show a while ago, and you had discussed uh, some of the... Uh, homework and the cleanup job you were doing on, on some of the things that were happening over in the Wuhan lab. And one of the things you had noted uh, was that in the Wuhan lab, there was some evidence that they may not have only been working on coronaviruses and the series of coronaviruses, but also more deadly viruses. One of them notably called Nipah with an N and that the fatality rate of this virus is anywhere from 50 to 80 percent. When you had said that on my Fox show, I got a boatload of emails from people who are understandably terrified. I mean, coronavirus has been awful, but it's certainly, thankfully, nowhere near 50 to 80% lethality. Should we be concerned about another super virus coming out of not just this lab, but other labs? Well, I think we always should be. I, we were, it, it's horrible to talk about considering yourself lucky with COVID, but this virus has about a, a 0.7 to 1% lethality rate now that we've we settled into knowing about it. But uh, you're absolutely right. In patient samples that were sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology December 2019, 
they were sequenced on a machine that looks very deeply at not only what's in the patient sample, but sort of everything in the lab because it, it picks up, you know, a single dirt flake. So you can analyze 55 million reads from the machines that were uploaded into the, the, the database. And the bottom line is that the lab is widely contaminated with the Nipah virus. And it's not just the plain old infectious Nipah virus, but it's in cloning vectors. So the tools that, that biotechnologists use to move things around, to do gain-of-function research, to make things more airborne, et cetera, there's both the, the vector that you can buy from a catalog and, and do your genetics with and the virus itself. So this is perhaps the most you know, dangerous thing I have seen in a laboratory. Because it was in the, the laboratories where, where patient samples were, it was by definition not BLSA4, the highest safety level, it was either two or three. So you've got, you know, a, a very deadly virus being experimented with, perhaps doing gain of function. All I know is they were moving the genes around in the way you would do with gain of function. I want to be careful about what I say, but it's, as you say, a 50 to 80% lethal virus. I mean, this really is, uh, is horrifying information. Uh, you know, we have viruses out there right now. This is a respiratory virus, obviously coronavirus, but this is not the be all end all in viruses. You know, you have Hanta, you have Nipah, you have... Ebola. I mean, these viruses transmit via different vectors. Uh, obviously, you know, you can have a waterborne illness, insect-borne illness, but the fact that they're working on this stuff and there was evidence of some manipulation, you know, you would think the United States government, and I hope they are, Doc, I hope they're just not telling us it's been really focused on this, but thank you for updating us on that. One of the other things we had discussed about previously, which I've been getting a lot of questions on, is uh, you had said something in a radio interview you did with me about how coronavirus, the uh, it secretes a form of a protein, uh, which 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 does something to suppress to suppress either the immune or inflammatory response. And how you thought that was was odd. Uh, it was a fascinating point. If you could just now that we have some more time, we're not compressed by radio commercial timelines here. What, what did you mean by that? Why is it so unusual? Okay, well, let's go back and, and learn a little bit about viruses and then get into it. Uh, there are three kinds of proteins in the coronavirus. Four of them that end up in the baby viruses that go on to, you know, to further infections. Uh, about a dozen that are inside the cell that are making the, making the virus particles themselves. But there are two of them that are secreted by the virus into the bloodstream. They circulate in your bloodstream and they're designed to do things in the immune, to suppress the immune system. So it's, it's very unusual for a virus to sort of put out this kind of of you know, false flag, as it were, almost from a protein point of view. When you look at um, the proteins the virus is making in the first 12 hours after an infection, so you got to assume the virus is doing the things it thinks most important in the particular time frame. The the largest amount of protein it's making is this ORF8, ORF8, which is secreted in the bloodstream, and it does two things: it suppresses interferon response and it suppresses the presentation of antigens to the immune system. So let's, let's dissect those two. When you get a viral infection, you get a fever and you get sweats and you feel like, you know, you have that achy feeling. It's not the virus doing that. It's your own interferon. And it probably relates to a time when we didn't have medicines, of course. So this was a signal that you needed to go away from your tribe. You needed to go off in the woods and either live or die and then come mm. back to your tribe. So it became a, a, a signal of infection. ORF8 is the only protein I've ever seen in a virus that suppresses this. The consequence is that 
SARS-CoV-2 is the first new respiratory virus that was asymptomatic from the beginning. Very wow. unusual. What is the other thing it does? The other thing it does is it suppresses the presentation of antigens to the immune system. So when you get an infection, when you want your antibodies to be made or you get a vaccine, you want your antibodies to be made, you want your T cells to respond, there's a presentation process. So there's a whole cell and a, and a mechanism where this foreign protein is presented to the immune system. It says, immune system, this is something you need to make uh, you, you need to make antibodies against, you need to make T cells against because it's foreign. This protein suppresses that. Now we've seen that before where, what virus does that the most? HIV. Hmm. So what does HIV do? You can never get an antibody response. You can never get your immune system going with HIV because it's constantly being tamped down. So back to coronavirus, you get a vaccine, you're getting about 12% of the whole virus genome in the vaccine, you're only getting a piece of the spike protein. <clears throat> There's three other proteins in the virus that you're not getting antibodies to, and you're not getting anything with respect to ORFATE. So wow. probably a fundamental reason why infected patients have such a better immune response to vaccinated patients is they're actually making antibodies against ORFATE. Final data point is, when you look at the human antibodies in an infected patient against the spike protein, the other membrane proteins in the virus, or ORFATE, ORFATE is about an order of magnitude higher. So the true, when the true infection causes a very strong immune response with this very rare protein. Um, again, I, you know, other data facts is ORFATE was being studied uh, really only in one place three years, you know, from 2016 to 2019. Uh, and that was inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So they were doing paper after paper on what does ORFATE do? How do we make it stronger? How do we make it weaker? Um, even some of the U.S. scientists who were cutting edge, top of the top of the team for the, the rest of coronavirus research, were not looking at ORFATE like the Wuhan Institute of Virology was. Oh, wow. Well, I have two takeaways from that. And if I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think it would be... Um, not irresponsible to surmise that if they, we know they were doing their homework on manipulation of viruses in the Wuhan lab. That's not a controversial point. That's accepted as fact. Uh, you know, whether it's conclusive that this was a lab leak, this specific virus is not yet conclusive. A lot of evidence in that regard. But doc, if, if I were doing experimentation with what I wanted to be a uh, contagious respiratory virus, um, and I was creating some kind of a bioweapon, um, what I would do is I, was make, I would make sure early on that patients uh, weren't symptomatic and were, in fact, spreading it widely. I mean, what you're saying about the human immune response um, is correct. I'm not an immunologist, but I've been fascinated by science from early on. You know, it, it's, it's these mechanisms that where you present as an illness that some of them are from your own body to make sure you're aware you're, in fact, ill. And you're right. A, a more of a uh, sociological response so you don't infect the rest of the community as well. But what better way to spread a respiratory pathogen than to suppress that response, at least temporarily, to make sure you're as infectious as possible to as many people as possible? I mean, that, that, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's happened with this virus. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, an example is with SARS-1, which, which is a related virus, about, uh, you know, 90% uh, related, um, <clears throat> There were no asymptomatic patients whatsoever 
uh, out of the 8,000, there was actually one, and they, it was so unusual, they, they published it as a case report, one asymptomatic patient. Here we had about 40 to 50% of the, of the patients are asymptomatic. Uh, and again, that's, that's just never been seen before in a natural uh, coronavirus. That's, that's so bizarre. The second thing I take away from that is we're seeing a lot of data and data matters. We're data driven people and we should be, but some of the data coming from foreign countries where the data sets are sadly more complete. Um, we're seeing natural immunity seems to be not perfect, but more potent than some of the vaccine derived immunity um, from either the MRNA or the whole virus J and J type vaccines, uh, which are a little different, the technology there. Um, is that because of what you just said, a developed immunity to this, uh, this, this separate protein that suppresses the response? Is that what you think that is and why the natural immunity may long-term be more effective than the vaccines we have now? Well, yeah, Dan. I mean, I think it's the second layer of the bottom layer. The, the bottom layer of, of all immunology is that uh, a natural infection gives you better uh, immunity than a vaccine. I mean, vaccines are wonderful, and they've probably been next to you know clean water, uh, one of the, one of the greatest uh, public health successes of of the last two hundred years. But but a natural infection will, by nature, um, be a better be a better immune response. You'll get a broader range of B cells, broader range of T cells. The memory the memory cells are, are a little bit stronger. Um, you know, it's like it's like you know you know when when you're in basic training and you you know you have a you have a war exercise. That's great. But if you know you get hardened by real battle, that's that's the difference. That's a great analogy and an accurate one, uh, Doctor. What with natural immunity, something that concerns me, I, I had been vaccinated early on after a bout with lymphoma. I was one of the early vaccinations in Florida. I was one of the first past folks who got it. Um, I had a pretty severe case. I, I, I don't know if other people have mild cases. I can't speak to that. I can only tell you my own personal anecdote. Mine was re really bad. I mean, 103 and a half fever, just chills, the whole panoply of awful things. I had the monoclonals. Uh, I also had a doctor who gave me ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, his decision, my decision. I'm an adult. Well, you do you, folks. I'm not your doctor. Um, I also took, you know, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, quercetin, just over-the-counter things as well, uh, melatonin as well. Uh, doc, I had it for basically 36 hours, and um, I was done with it. I didn't even miss work. Um, I got it on Friday. I was back to work on Monday. But having said that, Saturday and Sunday um, were really awful, and uh what, what worried me is I started doing a little bit of homework on reinfection for personal reasons. I don't want to get reinfected with this thing, but yeah. it's not unheard of, sadly. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, it, just explain the immunological difference between, say, chicken pox, where, you know, when I was a kid, they had chicken pox parties. You know, oh, just get the kids now, get it done with while they're healthy. Um, and you really, yeah, and you don't get them again. I know it's probably heresy to doctors, but I know I, that's what happened when we were younger. But why do you think the difference here where there are reinfections? They're not very common, but it does happen. You know, there, there, are, there are some mysteries with this, with this particular virus. Um, part of it is that, it, you know, it, it, it is, it's changing so quickly because we're both it, growing. You know, we're doing 300 million probably gain-of-function experiments, right? Every person that gets infected, the virus, uh, you know, plays with a with a particular that person's immune system, and then when it leaves that person for another, it, it, it's had it's done a gain of function experiment. So it's rapidly evolving away from the immune system. It's it's dodging the antibodies that you're forming. So um, it's going to have to burn through its own repertoire. Now it has a relatively limited repertoire um, in terms of of possible changes that that can can still bind to the receptor in a strong way, but get around the immune system. So 
I, I think Omicron, oh, knock on wood, but it, it looks yeah. to me like it's going to be the, the last major wave uh, before this truly becomes endemic, becomes something that we don't talk about, we don't hear about much at all in the news, uh, simply because it's so infectious, um, but also so so minimally uh, minimally lethal, minimally uh, pathogenic. It's it's quite a good virus from that point of view. Yeah, doctor. I mean, from your mouth to God's ears, I, I hope you're right. I mean, I really thought Delta down here in Florida was going to be the end of it. I mean, I have a friend who is a, a healthcare professional, works in one of the local hospitals. And, you know, Delta was was bad down here. And then uh, I thought, gosh, they must be running out of people to infect. At some point, the simple arithmetic doesn't work. So I, I do hope you're right. That leads me to actually my next question, uh, unintentional, but uh, perfect segue. Given Omicron, um, it appears at least from the, from the early data, we don't again have a conclusive data set yet, but that Omicron appears incredibly contagious, high or nots here. But thank the Lord, um, less lethal. We haven't seen the degree of lethality and very serious side effects. Um, why is that? Why the upper respiratory rather than lower respiratory lung-based symptoms, which are more severe that we saw with Delta and the original variant? What, what's the difference? It's, it's the same core virus, granted some genetic differences. Why, why the disparity, uh, thankfully, in, in fatality rates? Yeah, so, so first let, let's talk about the in, in infectiveness. So um, when Omicron came out, one of the remarkable things was that although it, had, it was missing a year worth of background mutations, as if it had been Rip Van Winkle or often, you know, off in a lab somewhere, um, it had gained the ability to get around every single antibody that the general population had. Mm. Uh, gets around all monoclonals except for one. Um, this was a really unusual finding. Um, it's the kind of thing that you would uh, unusual to, in nature. It just it just doesn't happen in nature. Usually there's a there's a, a short back and forth between the immune system. So as the virus drifts, the immune system drifts, and you sort of keep up with it. Uh, but in this case, it, it 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 again it skipped a whole year worth of human experience. Um, but this but this in in March of this last year, there was a paper from South Africa where they were purposely taking the, the virus from, the, from July 2020 and incubating it with convalescent serum, pooled serum from patients who had gotten over SARS-CoV-2 to see if the virus could still infect cells, you know, even the presence of, of this pooled antibodies from the world's human uh, population. Uh, of course, that's, that's a gain of function of getting around, around antibodies. Wow. So that's why it's so infectious. But why do you uh, think uh, the the upper respiratory is it a is it an ACE receptor thing? Is it it just targets different tissue types? Why not the again? Thankfully, the lower body, more serious inflammatory lung symptoms that have been like, uh, I mean, literally suffocating people to death. I mean, people have been dying, uh, not necessarily due to the virus, but due to the body's response to the virus. Yep. So, so three observations, and then we'll make conclusions from those. Number one is it grows uh, about eight times faster in the upper airway and the nasal pharynx uh, than the Delta variant. It grows about one-fourth as fast in the deep lungs as the Delta variant. Hmm. Uh, and that's probably the reason it gives you an upper, you know, a nasal, a nasal discharge, sneezing, sore throat, but not, but not the pneumonia. But the other fact is that while it has the furin cleavage site that we've talked about so much, this yeah. thing that activates it, this thing that makes it go to the brain and the heart and the liver and all the, all the, the, the additional 
organs that it goes to in addition to infecting a given human, the furin site on Omicron, which is kind of crazy, it's almost hard for me to say it, is not cleaved. So hmm. one of the other things that the cleavage of, of, of the delta of the furin site in Delta and the original virus did was, was this really, really vicious thing, uh, which is called forming a syncytion. So when the, when the spike protein is cleaved, the second half of it is like this, this um, battering ram that can go into cells you know, very, very easily. And when it's pre-cut, like it was in the original virus and in Delta, it goes into the neighboring cells. So when you look at, a, at, a, at an autopsy at a lung, a lung from a patient, what you'll see is you'll see like 100 cells in one circle because the virus has infected a hundred cells right next to it, but it didn't do that by going out and coming back in through the surface. It went through the sides. Um, this is called a syncytium virus. Um, and this of course evades the immune system. This is this completely evades the immune system because it never sees the outside, but it requires the cleavage of the furin site. So Omicron cannot form a syncytium. All it can do is go out deal with the immune system and go into a cell in the traditional fashion. Um, and this shows the fundamental difference of the cleavage of the furin site, both with respect to transmission, but also pathogenicity. Um, you're not getting pneumonia and you're not getting it, of course, into the brain and the heart and the lung and the, and the vascular system, all because of the presence or absence of the cleavage of that four amino acid piece um, that was put in uh, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Fascinating. Doc, you've been very generous with your time. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, no. The trajectory of this virus going forward. Uh, listen, I know this is all predictive, but you, you're a doctor. That's what we do. I mean, you don't know where cancer is yeah. going to go either. It doesn't stop you from treating it. You know, we've seen with respiratory viruses in the past, notably the 1918 Spanish flu, which was particularly dangerous, um, that the, the, the people who were infected with that later on it eventually burned itself out. You know, we still have influenza, but we didn't see a virus as severe. The reason's pretty clearly an evolutionary one. You kill all your hosts, there's nothing left to infect. I mean, viruses don't think. Obviously, they're not alive. You know, it's a DNA-coded uh, protein and things. It's not, it doesn't think. Um, but isn't it more effective for this virus moving forward to become, like Omicron, highly contagious and more contagious, but yes, yet less lethal? And do you know of any examples in, 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 uh, in the research you've seen of viruses like this that have become the opposite, say, maintaining their infection level but becoming more lethal, because that that would be scary. That's that's what concerns me. Well, you know, I think I think Delta was approaching that kind of event, um, but Omicron is clearly very very different. I mean, I think that I want to get some good news, you know, out for your audience there. So there's a nice study Please. out of uh, uh, out of uh, the, the Kaiser system in California. 52,000 Omicron patients, 18,000 Delta patients from November, 1st of November, 1st of January. So that's a nice population. Um, there was a 75% a, a reduction in hospitalizations with Omicron versus Delta. Uh, I misspoke, a 50% hospitalization, 75% ICU, uh, and a 91% death reduction. One person out of 53,000 died of Omicron in, in, in this study. Um, you know, and so that's the thing I use with patients is, is I try to put something in context they can understand your lifetime risk of being struck by lightning one in 15,000. Mm. So your risk of being killed by Omicron one in 52,000 
I think we can I think we can go back to normal life with that kind of risk prob- probability. Yeah. Yeah, well, I concur and I think a lot of people uh you've seen regardless doc. I know this uh you're a scientist, you're not a politician. I don't ask you political questions, but thankfully we've seen some people on both sides of the massive political divide say the same. I mean, even Gail King was on a nightly show this week saying, "Listen, I'm I'm done with this. It's time to just go back, take your mitigation measures, wash your hands, eat right, lose some weight if you need to." The old common sense advice doctors like yourself have been giving people since, uh, you know, I saw my pediatrician, Dr. Suska, God rest his soul, you know, 40 years ago. Eat your apples, Daniel. Drink a lot of water. I mean, common sense stuff. Last question, Doc. I get a lot of emails on this. Obviously, me not being a doctor or medical professional. People are very concerned about some of the reports of myocarditis. Um, They are rare, thankfully, but they are there. They're not non-existent. And the question I get a lot is, uh, you know, listen, I'm a young man, young woman. Uh, I don't, I can't answer them because I'm not their doctor. But, you know, is this is this worth it for me? And a lot of them have already had coronavirus. In other words, is it worth the worth the risk? And I'm not asking you to get. I'm just asking you to comment on the general uh, trend for some of these folks to get myocarditis. They are concerned. Some of them had Corona. They're 18, 19. They're athletic. They're young. They're like, hey, you know what? Is this for me or is it not? What do you make of a lot of these reports about this uh, inflammatory? Uh, heart condition. Well, it's, it's, it's real. And it occurs with both the virus and the vaccines. Um, it occurs, uh, typically in young men, more than women, about three to one men, male to women, male to female. Um, it's typically mild. You typically recover from it completely, but, but if you know, the heart cells can't reproduce. So to the extent you lose 1%, 2% of your cardiac output, it's gone. If you're an athlete, that's a really big deal. So, um, if you've had, you know, if you've if you've had the the, the infection, you know, I, I think you're fully immunized. I mean, I am not. I I've looked at the data on the boosters. I, I mean, if you want to get one, they're fine, especially if you're over sixty, probably. Um, but you know, I think I think we've gotten as much as we can out of the original the original vaccines because Omicron has now moved away. Um, so we we know scientifically that the spike protein that the vaccines make is no longer recognized. Uh, uh, the antibodies you make against that vaccine are no longer effective against Omicron. So um, I, I really think that uh, at this point in time, we should stop. I, now, in terms of, the, of, of what you do, I think <clears throat> there's, also, there's also this strange increase in all-cause mortality now uh, right. in, in many insurance companies where they have to write a check when somebody you know, cashes in their life insurance. So they're, they're Johnny on the spot on this particular topic. Um, there seems to be, in my opinion, and this is, this is now I'm going a little off the reservation, but um, that there is there's sort of a how can I say it an increase in the in the coagulation state. So if you were to measure the coagulation parameters in any given patient, it's going to be the same. You do a, a you know hundred thousand patients, there might be a, a, a tiny difference on a population basis. But what this means is that the second and third standard deviations are going to have more coagulation events. So what does that mean? That means stroke. That means heart attacks. That means you know any sort of coagulation, renal failures, and those sorts of things. Um, there's actually been studies where high, very, very good hydration in post-stroke patients reduces uh, repeat strokes by 15, 20, 30 hmm. percent. So I'm telling everyone I know, look at you know, let's stay really well hydrated for the next six, nine months. I'm not good at that. I don't like to I don't like to drink water a lot. It's just not my nature. But yeah, but I either. think I think probably right now we should keep our we should keep our blood as, as viscous as we can. I think a lot of people sometimes take a Bayer aspirin or a, a St. Johnson's aspirin at the bedtime. Um, again, to, to kind of make your blood a little bit slick. 
Um, our, our blood is thickest between two and five in the morning, and that's why you get you know, strokes and heart attacks in that time frame. So, um, you know, common sense things. But I'm seeing, I think there's a coagulation change that may be fundamental now in the population, uh, completely manageable but uh, good to know about in my opinion. Yeah, over the last year, I've really focused on hydration too. And I, I think we'll end there, Doc, because it just, uh, uh, you know, is this kind of where we came in? Reminds me of, again, when I was a kid, how the standard medical advice healthcare professionals for decades have been giving you uh, still applies. Get a, eat a balanced diet, work out. Um, don't let this uh, coronavirus attack, uh, you know, fat tissues, you know, work out, try to lose some weight, hydrate yourself. Uh, th these are all old standard tips that never, ever get old. Uh, doctor, you are just a well of fantastic information. I have tremendous respect for you. You've been an asset to this show and our audience. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. You are welcome back anytime. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan, very much. I told you. I told you that interview wouldn't disappoint. You know, Guy and I were listening to that with rapt attention. Stunning information, right? Thanks, Dr. Stephen Quay. We'll get him back sometimes on our radio show often. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The interview you've been waiting for, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas. Check this out. By popular demand, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast for the first time, Project Veritas' James O'Keefe, an actual journalist for once on the Dan Bongino Show. James, thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Now, you're an actual journalist, unlike the pseudo-journalists that attack you. And I want to get to this first because you have a book coming out. I have my copy right here. Folks, take a look. For those of you watching on Rumble, James O'Keefe, American Muckraker. You can see here's the cover right here. You can pick it up now. It's coming out January 25th, but you can pre-order wherever you get your books. American Muckraker, James O'Keefe. James, uh, the subtitle is Rethinking Journalism for the 21st Century. Uh, this is kind of an open book question for you here, but what's wrong with journalism in the 21st century? They've been doing such a great job up until now. <laughs> Kidding, of well, course. What isn't wrong with journalism? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like uh, the, the, what everyone knows to be true is just that people in, in power have a relationship with media. And you saw it this week with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Everyone's defending him when you're supposed to be speaking truth to power. But to be a, a journalist in modern times, you really have to accept, you really have to suffer, you have to endure a lot of defamation. Um, you have to use undercover techniques, which is what we do. It uh, allows us a degree of independence and we have to use whistleblowers. We have to find people inside the government and corporations like Pfizer and the Department of Defense and the Marine Corps. These are all people that work with Project Veritas and they all say to me, there's nowhere else for them to go. The story we broke this week, the, the, I can't tell you who the source is. It wasn't the Marine Corps major inside DARPA. But all of these people have one thing in common. Uh, they all believe that the system is broken and there's no one that will represent them. So this book, American Mockraker, it tells an unbelievable nonfiction story of what we've been through and what it takes to do this. The preface of the book is actually called Suffering. 
which might surprise people. But whether it's David Delayden or Andy No or my colleagues being raided by the FBI, now you have the FBI working in conjunction with the New York Times, that's ironic. Um, these are extraordinary times. And uh, even though it's tough, I am hopeful. I'm not a cynic. I believe that we are going to succeed in telling the truth as long as we don't stop doing what it is that we do. James, we're talking to James O'Keefe here, author of a terrific new book, American Muckraker. You see the cover right there, folks. You know, James, you've done some really groundbreaking work. And, and oddly enough, as you state, you've become kind of a target, which is strange. You would think people who profess to be a part of journalism or the uncovering of facts uh, would say whether they like you personally or not. I mean, they hate me. That's no secret either. That they would say, hey, you know what? I don't really like the guy, but my gosh, I mean, this Fauci Collins uh, uh, email with this DARPA scandal you guys just uncovered about them apparently trying to suppress any information about a devastating, deadly lab leak from Wuhan. You know, you would think a serious person in journalism would put aside their personal feelings and say, hey, O'Keefe, Project Veritas, congrats on breaking a huge story and, and be calling you up for interviews. But no such thing, James. You find yourself the subject of targeting, slander, libel, and FBI raids. Yeah, that's, that's the, the reality, and that's why people don't do what I do. But if you keep going, if you don't stop, you're going to send a message to other people that they, in fact, can do it too. In this book, I talk about, I wasn't in D.C. on January 6th. I, was in a hotel, or I wasn't on the Capitol grounds. I was in a hotel room, and I was meeting with a source, uh, someone inside the Customs and Border Patrol. And I write this story about how he was watching events unfold. And he said, that's it. I'm blowing the whistle. If it's not classified, I'm releasing the documents. And I said, are you afraid? And this man said, well, James, as long as you don't stop, I'm not going to stop. So I really do believe that the only thing that can stop patriots is patriots stopping. What the FBI did was unconscionable, okay? It was a disgrace. Uh, they came to my apartment with a battering ram. Um, they're putting American journalists now in handcuffs. And Dan, there was a brief moment after this happened. I don't know if you, your audience remembers. The ACLU defended me. Yeah, then yeah. The New York we, we Times talked about it on our show, James, We, which I was stunned, but go ahead, I'm sorry. Sure that the, the Dean Baquet, the head of the New York Times, did not like Ben Smith at the New York Times defending me. There's there's a sort of a civil war within the New York Times, more on that later. But there was a there is a Venn diagram of left and right, and there still is a sliver of overlap between the left and right in this country. And that was a moment, them putting me in handcuffs, 10, 10 12 FBI agents at 6 a.m., banging on my door um, and putting me in my hallway of my apartment building in front of my neighbors. Um, I was barely clothed. And, and they, they execute a search warrant. And the Attorney General of the United States said in July, Merrick Garland said, you are not to execute search warrants against journalists in this right. fashion. So this is like a Watergate-level scandal. Who approved this raid against me? The U.S. attorneys in the Southern District of New York, where, Dan, I know you used to work in New York yeah. in law enforcement. That's right. The U.S. attorneys, the prosecutors argued before the judge. They said, well, James O'Keefe is not a journalist, Your Honor. And the judge said, this is a federal judge, said, why not? And the prosecutor said, well, Your Honor, because James O'Keefe doesn't get consent from the people he reports on, <laughs> which is an argument that is so effing absurd yeah. that this federal judge rejected that argument. This is an Obama-appointed judge. Her name is Torres. And the judge ordered the FBI stop going through my phone. But we have, we have crossed a new Rubicon 
And was I afraid? I mean, I was afraid for a day or two. I, I, it's slightly terrifying. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that this was happening. It felt like I was living in a dream state that morning. Um, but we're, but you know what? Even more sources are coming to Project Veritas right now because they're all saying, James, you must be doing something right. If, if you're getting flack, you're over the target. I just hope that I'm calling on all journalists to, to take a stance. And Dan, just one more bit of news, um, and I'll, I'll release more on this, more documents in the next couple of days. We just learned yesterday, we obtained a document, that the FBI has apparently been in communication with Pfizer Pharmaceutical mm-hmm. about me. Why is Pfizer talking to the FBI about Project Veritas? So you have, you have um, co- corporations like Pfizer, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the New York Times all working in harmony with each other. And that's just not how that's just not how it's supposed to supposed to work. So it's up to independent people. Citizens now have to do the journalism that the New York Times and these other organizations are unwilling to do. You know, James, I, I tell you, the ACLU who once defended the Ku Klux Klan, I mean, an abhorrent organization, but the ACLU once understood that the dangers of suppressing speech you didn't like. Um, that the approach to speech you don't like is more speech and counteracting speech you don't like with speech you may like. That mission they got away from, and I was really stunned and 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 quite happy when they defended you, Guy. Remember we talked about it on we that day we gave them a round of applause. Like, hey, good for you guys for doing that. But the story about what happened to you with the Ashley Biden diary is so deeply disturbing. Uh, and if I'm getting any of these facts wrong, so so a source gives you the, a copy of it or. Uh, some notes from whatever it may be. Um, you know, you do the you do the proper thing with it. You're raided by the FBI. Then the New York Times proceeds to write a piece. It appears they had an insider in either Justice or at the FBI leaking materials that appear to be privileged between you and your attorney. I read the story and I'm I'm thinking to myself, this kid. I remember going over it with the producers. Like, am I sure I'm getting this right? Because even for the Spygate Russia hoax kind of FBI leadership. And the press, it, it sounded third world to me. It is. It's, it's, it's very 1984. And um, I talk about this in American Muckrake, that the object of persecution is persecution. Some have told me that the nature of that raid was to intimidate me, was to scare me. Um, I've not been charged with anything, Dan, but the, the search warrant, uh, people say, well, how did they, they, you have to get a magistrate judge, which is a lower federal judge, That's right. to approve an FBI raid. And for the FBI to execute a search warrant against anybody, particularly a journalist, it's a very aggressive, that is a very aggressive thing for them to do. And when, after this happened, not just so your audience understands, someone submit, sent a document to me or a source transmitted uh, the diary to us and you are protected under the Supreme Court case called Bartnicki v. Vopper. A journalist is allowed to receive a document even if the document was stolen. We didn't know that it was stolen. And even if it was, we don't know whether it was stolen. If it was stolen, we would be protected under Supreme Court precedent. And by the way, if your audience is not familiar with this, do you know what it's called when a journalism organization or New York Times or Washington Post publishes a stolen document? That's called Tuesday. It happens every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and, and they show me this uh, this uh, search warrant and it lists crimes such as accessory after the fact, transporting stolen documents across state lines, uh, misprison of a felony. These are absurd, absurd uh, pretenses 
by which to search a journalist's home. If it's a crime to transport stolen documents across state lines, they'd have to put all the people at the New York Times in prison when they published their story. And by the way, when they did the story on Trump's tax return, they right. published no documents. They had no on the record sources. So what this is really about is it's about power. It's about a symbiotic relationship between the paper of record and their government sources. And they can't bite the hand that feeds them, but they, but they all, always overplay their hand. And that leads me to another, another issue, which is our defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. And by the way, we're winning that defamation lawsuit. And, and while we are currently winning that defamation lawsuit, the New York Times publishes my attorney-client privileged memos. Within minutes of me being out of handcuffs after the FBI raid, I got a text message from the New York Times, Mike Schmidt, national security reporter. How the hell did Mike Schmidt know the contents of a secret grand jury subpoena minutes after the FBI right. raid? Well, you're gonna have to figure that one out for yourself. Yeah, it's just so troubling, James. We're talking to James O'Keefe, again, author of a spectacular new book, folks. Pick it up wherever you get your books. It's coming out January 25th, but or you can pre-order it now. American Muckraker, here's the cover right here by James O'Keefe, who we're speaking to right now. You know, when I was a federal agent, James, you know, mistakes get made all the time, but I, I honestly, I can't imagine walking into a frontline supervisor at GS-14 and saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm writing up the details of an arrest warrant for a local journalist who may have gotten their hands on some very uh, sensitive information. I, I Candidly, I mean, he would have looked at me like I was crazy, like that would never, ever pass muster with an assistant United States attorney. Matter of fact, they'd be wondering why you were harassing local journalists. Um, the fact that not only did none of that happen with you, but you found yourself quite literally, you know, in handcuffs uh, with a raise. I mean, this has got to be so deeply disturbing. And I think a lot of what's playing into it is what you just said. You have no person in America has done more damage to the credibility of CNN than you. Well, really, they've done it to themselves, but you've exposed it. And uh, to the you've done a lot of homework on the Biden administration, Fauci and otherwise. I think this is a purely political case. It's nothing to do with the law at all. Right. Well, you're, you're right about that. And I mean, you have to kind of get into political philosophy to understand how we've gotten this far. We did a story about Facebook and Facebook said, even if the information is true, we're, sh we're still going to censor it. They use this term misinformation in such a misleading way. They call, we did the story we did this week, Dan, on um, the, the, doc the documents within the Department of Defense. It was the number one story, it's the number one trending story on Twitter. By the way, I'm banned on Twitter, yet our videos continue to trend. But it was taken down and, you know, someone maybe made a phone call and asked them to do them a favor and CEO of Twitter took that down. And you have to wonder, how do we get here? And I think it's about power. I think it's about, you know, who you're allowed, which side, whose ox you're goring is what matters. The term misinformation, what does that even mean? That means the audience draws the, draws the wrong conclusion from facts, even if they're true. And at Project Veritas in the last decade, I will give anybody a $10,000 check if they can give me one example of, of, a, of a situation where I've lied to my audience. Do I use undercover techniques? Of course I do, because it's a question of relative deception. If I'm honest, if, if I present myself as a journalist to, to the Department of Justice, are they gonna be honest with you? If I present myself to a journalist, to a Twitter engineer, are they gonna tell the truth? No. Good point. So that's why I use undercover techniques, because people are more honest when they don't know who they're talking to.
And yet these people, these journalists go to these organizations and go to these people in authority and present themselves as who they are. And it's become corrupted because the people inside the government are sharing lies with those journalists. So we've gotten to a point in American history where it is completely up to us. And I will not be intimidated by these organizations. I was scared for about a day or two because who wouldn't? You're a human and it's like, yeah, of well, course. <laughs> but, but I, I, I am very emboldened by your audience supporting us and sharing our videos, distribution by proxy. Um, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of great reporting that we're doing. And, and in fact, another story here next week. Yeah, well, one, I applaud you for, you know, for not backing down. It is frightening, James. Anyone who tells you otherwise is candidly just full of crap. I mean, the FBI has the power to take your life and your freedom. They're only the most powerful federal law enforcement entity anywhere in the known cosmos. Of course, you'd be frightened. And, and most people honestly probably would back down. You have not only not backed down, um, you've doubled down. And that's why I want you on the show. And I want people to go check out your work, Project Veritas, and to support you again, American Muckraker title of james's book these guys need our support folks they're getting it done they're not just uh talkers they're doers james your thoughts on um this current trend with uh big tech uh, obviously you've seen it you just addressed it they're using the uh the big umbrella title of disinformation or misinformation to politically target people like yourself but i find the more they target people like you um, it's almost the beach ball effect. You know, they try to keep the beach ball underwater and keep your explosive videos and exposés from being seen. But James, it's just not working. I mean, the beach ball pops out. You know, I've got a radio show we'll have you on. I've got a TV show. You're on Hannity. You're on Tucker. You're on Fox. You have a, a massive profile. You have a email list. Do, do you think it's working or is the Streisand effect happening here where, you know, hey, don't take a picture of my house and everybody flock to Barbara Streisand's house. To take a picture afterwards. Are they are they causing their own demise here? I think that uh, I feel strongly about this. I I think that content is king. What does that mean? I think that the story is good enough. It'll force people to talk about it, even if we're banned on Twitter. I want to repeat myself. I've been banned on Twitter since April. Project Veritas was banned on Twitter in February, and we've done some I don't know fourteen trending stories on Twitter. Now, where I disagree with many on the right is I don't think we should go to these other platforms exclusively because we end up creating an echo chamber. Um, I'm not saying those platforms aren't powerful. They are, and we'll use them, and we do use them. But my ultimate metric of whether our story is successful is whether it does trend number one on Twitter. This one this week did. That means people on the left are forced to confront the facts that we're finding, and often they attack us, and often we get them to print retractions. But I ultimately believe we have to fo form for us to save our republic, there has to be some consensus on the facts, okay? Um, so I believe strongly that we have to still debate people who don't agree with us. We have to have conversations with them at Veritas. We actually go into the street with microphones. We do that because we force ourselves, we force them to engage with us, and we will continue to do that. Um, so I, and on Instagram, they've recently made it so that you can't tag us. Uh, that's hurt our ability to get new followers. And the reason they give when they when they made that so you can't tag us is we've spread, quote, false information about COVID. Now, here's the interesting thing about that, Dan, is I've never myself actually made a claim about COVID or the vaccine. Right. The extent of our journalism is quoting people inside Pfizer saying, we, we quote this one guy inside Pfizer said that the antibodies are more effective than their own vaccine. That's a Pfizer scientist saying that. 
the, the reason we got banned from Twitter in April was a CNN uh, control room director, Charlie Chester, saying CNN is propaganda. That's CNN's control room director saying that. Why they banned me for quoting someone at CNN makes no sense. But I believe strongly that we shouldn't whine and complain about the censorship. We have to go out and get compelling video content that forces its way to a fuse throughout the uh, algorithms and, and, and distribution by proxy. You, you have uh, tweeted our stuff even though we're banned, or you've spread our stuff even though we're banned. That's yeah. the way to do it. Yeah, and uh, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Again, we're talking to James O'Keefe, author of the new book, American Muckraker. Check it out. Uh, thank you for that. Last question for you. I agree with you. Uh, as someone who is fully invested both emotionally and monetarily in a lot of these alternative platforms, I've said the same thing to people. Believe me, James, nothing benefits me financially more than you saying, ah, get off those platforms, come over to us. I've said that repeatedly, that I think you should make your home base for video, Rumble, your home base for microblogging, whatever you choose, Getter, Parler, Locals, I don't care. what. But I've, I haven't closed my Twitter account. I don't post there. My team uses it. I post on Parler, but I haven't closed it. And I haven't closed my YouTube account. I still have videos up on YouTube because I agree with you. Um, I think the creation of this parallel economy should be where our home base is because eventually what happened to you is going to happen to us too. And therefore you've already built, you could just seamlessly walk around. I have more followers on Rumble, more than twice as many than I do on YouTube. I have 2 million subscribers. I only have 800,000 on YouTube. But, I, but you're right. I don't stop posting there at all. The fact that my videos are discoverable on YouTube still will, I hope, change some minds. I fully agree with you on that. Um, but my last thought on this, you got the midterms coming up. I know you're a journalist, but, you know, listen, you're a journalist who covers politics. It's clearly gone downhill for the Biden administration, and they've been enveloped in scandal, too. I've always wondered why an organization like yours um, doesn't get more like Department of Education insiders uh, who speak out when in the Trump administration, you know, everyone and their mother was leaking, James. Do you think it's just that? liberal loyalists are just in like a cult where they're like, no matter how corrupt the national school school boards association and the DOE is, they don't care. Like they worship the golden calf. Uh, you know, we had all these leakers in the Trump administration, I guess better summed up. Where are they all now? Well, it's an interesting point. And I write about this in this chapter of American muckraker called propaganda, you know, in the Soviet union, people knew what the truth was, but they had to kind of yeah, only talk about it within their own household. And, and we're, we're increasingly seeing this phenomenon, particularly in the Democratic Party, and we've covered stories on the midterm elections in uh, purple states or uh, red, where, where Democrats are running in a conservative state where they can't actually say aloud what they actually believe. They have to, we've actually had hidden cameras record Democrats uh, running for Senate where they'll say, don't tell voters what your actual positions are. <laughs> you saw that recently in the Phil Murphy race, Veritas, it was very close. We caught Phil Murphy yeah. running for Democrat in New Jersey governor's race and his people saying, don't tell yeah. people that that was a great Phil video. That was an amazing to video. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. This, this phenomenon is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So what they do is they don't say anything at all. And that's why you're seeing that phenomenon where you're saying there's all those leakers, but there are a lot of leakers at this. At the, recently, there was a, a leaker inside the California education system who leaked us uh, audio and video of Gabriel Guype, a communist teacher in California, saying he wanted to send students to anti-virallies. And he was fired. He was yeah. fired, which is a very difficult thing to do to get a teacher fired in California. 
and it created a absolute sensation at school board meetings in Sacramento. And I want to say about whistleblowing, it's not easy. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg once referred to it like spacewalking. It is really, there's nowhere else for people to go but Project Veritas. And it is important that we have whistleblowers. And I believe there are a lot of cynical people, hopeless people. Most of the comments under our video, half the comment, nothing will ever happen to these people. I think they're wrong. Something will happen to these people. And it's up to us. And there are, we have sources everywhere, Dan. I mean, everywhere. Inside yeah, the Department it. of Defense now. So I believe there's going to be a mass movement, a thousand plus people coming out this year and next year. And this are the only, in our world of illusion and quasi-illusion, these people give us hope. These are the people that can actually change things. Filming what's going on, trust the evidence of your eyes and ears, a la George Orwell 1984. The party tells you to not trust the evidence of your eyes and ears, but if Project Veritas, believe, we believe the truth will set you free. And it's going to require brave insiders and heroes to come out. And you can do that at Veritas Tips at ProtonMail.com. We've never lost a lawsuit. We don't bear false witness. We're not going to be intimidated. We want you to come to us at Project Veritas. Well, uh, no one does it better than you guys, James. I'm uh, proud to have you on the show. One last uh, plug for the book here, folks. Uh, American Muckraker, you see it right there. Sorry, I'm getting the camera. American Muckraker, James O'Keefe, the author. James, the release date, January 25th. You can pre-order now. Uh, let's have you on the radio show when it comes out. If you're not loaded with media appearances and we'll, we'll, uh, proudly get this out there for people to read. They need to support you and support project Veritas. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for tuning in folks. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed those interviews as much as I enjoyed conducting them. Please subscribe to our rumble account, rumble, R U M B L E rumble.com slash Bongino. It's free trying to get to 3 million subscribers at the end of the year. We just crossed 2 million. Thank you for your support. Rumble.com slash Bongino. Thanks a lot. We'll see you tomorrow. You just heard Dan Bongino.